This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello i'm matt Jolly. this is the red box podcast featuring the best of my show on times radio monday to thursday 10 till 1 now obviously exams are in the news a lot but what we tried to do today was explain what's going on behind the scenes in a moment i speak to paul harrison Theresa May's former spokesman and Sean Kemp who was a spinner for the Lib Dems when they were in coalition about what happens what's it like being in the eye of the storm particularly if you upset the nation's young people but first of all algorithms I spoke to Tamandra Harkness about the technology which is deciding students futures. Uh, so let's start right at the beginning, because um, it's one of those things where everyone just says, oh, it's the algorithm, it's the algorithm. Just explain exactly what, what an algorithm is and how it's been used in, uh, in this case to, to come up with students' exam results. Well, an algorithm in general, we, we tend to talk about it as if it's some magic oracle thing that nobody can understand. Really, an algorithm is just a list of rules, a, a way of doing something. So when you learn long division at school, if anyone else that's an algorithm it's just a list of rules to how to process things but obviously what we're talking about here is much more complicated than that you need a computer and masses of data to do it but really you've just given it instructions you said put this information in do this to it then add this information and then this will come out at the end so i think that's the first thing to remember is it's not magic somebody designed it and somebody decided what its priorities would be um, and we're seeing the end result now I mean, to talk about this algorithm specifically, I think, again, I think students expected that because teachers had given them predicted grades, then the grades they eventually got would be based on the predicted grades. I mean, you'd think that, wouldn't you? Well, I certainly would have. Uh, but, in fact, those teacher-predicted grades for most students had no input at all, really. What the algorithm started with was, how has your school done in the past in this subject? And from that, they basically took a few years' worth of how other students in your school have done in that subject in those exams in the past and went, okay, this is the range of grades then that we expect your class to get. So if in the past there's been lots of A's and a couple of B's and nothing lower, that's that's the range we're going to plug into our model. They've adjusted it slightly. They've looked back at maybe your GCSEs from your class and the previous class's GCSEs to see if there's any reason to adjust that up or down a bit. You know, maybe you've got a particularly clever class or it's been a particularly bad year. But essentially, what they've done is they've said, here's the grades that your school got in the past, 
subjects, we're going to give out these same grades again. And the only difference that it made, your teacher's input on you specifically, is they asked the teachers to rank the students in order from top to bottom. And then in that order, they slotted them into this model of grades. So if your teacher ranked you first in the class, and there's an A star, you get that, and so on down to, to the bottom grade that they predicted. So there's remarkably little input in most cases for you as an individual and the work you've done in the past and even what your teacher predicts you personally would have done if you'd actually taken the exam. So this is all just basically the, the, the rules, if you like, that were set by Ofqual, but the, you know, before the data even gets fed into it, you know, what they chose to prioritise and what they uh, didn't. And that's how you end up with these slightly strange cases of someone being predicted an A uh, and then them ending up as a U because the algorithm says somebody must have a U. Yes, broadly, yes. And there's a few exceptions. If the group is very small... If your class is less than 15 people, then Ofqual went, OK, you can't really statistically make those kind of predictions then. So in those cases, they did go much more on the teacher's individual predictions, which is one of the reasons why smaller schools, maybe private schools and subjects like, I don't know, Latin, uh, that fewer people do would stick more closely to the teacher's predictions. But for, for bigger groups and bigger subjects... Yes, it, I mean, this is why I think it, it feels very random. I mean, inevitably, in all years, people don't get the grades their teachers predict. I, mean, the, I think the 30 40% markdown is not unusual. But obviously, if you've got to take the exam, then that markdown is based on something that you've done. So, so I think that's rather different. Yeah, no, um, those of us with personal experience of not getting the grades that they were uh, predicted, at least I know that's my fault uh, and not, you know, a computer programme deciding that. Let's talk more broadly then, because, you know, some people might um, think that we're sort of just talking endlessly about exams, but the use of algorithms in public life and by the state. Um, in your uh, book, Big Data Does Size Matter, you talk quite a lot about different places have been used, whether it's in the criminal justice system. And uh, you know, I remember in particular an example in, in America where sentencing was going to be done by an algorithm. But the problem is if it all depends on the, the information. It's not a sort of perfect solution. It all depends on the information you put in and the information that you get out uh, at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, that's quite a good analogy, that that algorithm similarly was done based on information about other people. So... I have to say, it, it, it was designed to keep people out of prison in America. They recognised that they were sending a lot of people to prison and they wanted to know who are some people at very low risk of reoffending that we could not send to prison. But the way they chose to do it was, well, let's have a massive questionnaire and put in loads of information about this person and their history and their family history and where they live and whether they have a job and whether their parents split up. And how they answer questions like, uh, I sometimes feel that um, my life is not in my control. Or um, my favourite one was, uh, have you ever been in a situation that you wished you, you later wished you could have gotten out of? <laughs> <laughs> Which surely, surely anyone who's an adult will answer yes to that. And they, and they fed all this into their system and they came out and assigned a risk score to each person who was there ready for sentencing or maybe up for parole or bail. So there was always a human making a final decision, but if you're a judge and the computer's given this person a high-risk score, 
and you go against that, then you know that if that person does reoffend, people are going to look at you and say, well, why did you ignore the, the computer prediction? And the difficulty about that one was that it was completely non-transparent. It was uh, it, because it was designed by a private company. They refused to say how they'd come up with the answers. So people who were being sent to prison on the basis of this score were saying, well, how can this be justice? If I'm not even being judged on me, I'm being judged on people by some measure like me in the past who went on to reoffend. Surely that goes against all the principles of justice. And as far as I know, they, those the challenges and the appeals are still going on through the American courts, people trying to challenge it. Do we need to have a sort of broader conversation about ethics, about the the way that data is used, that, you know, out, rather than us talking, oh, I don't really understand all that maths. Um, actually, as a country, we need to talk about this stuff more and the role of algorithms or artificial intelligence, whatever it is, um, to, to, so that these, these decisions are made more out in the open. I, I think that's absolutely what we need. I, mean, I was quite, I was amused, but also quite cheered by the, the students demonstrating, the school students shouting, word I can't say on the radio, the algorithm. Uh, I never thought I'd see that. <laughs> They've gone mainstream. So I, I, <laughs> I hope that this is a point where people go, oh, actually, turns out this stuff can affect your life and not always in a good way. And maybe we should start questioning what goes in. I, I think you're right. I think people are a bit intimidated by the fact that it's maths. And they go, oh, well, I can't understand maths. And also that means that it's terribly clever and probably all its answers are correct. And hopefully this has done something to, to say, well, you don't actually need to understand all the maths to ask questions about what were the assumptions that went in? What, what did you design this algorithm to do? Because it seems that they designed it to reproduce the pattern of grades of previous years very closely, which it has done. But what they haven't done is link that particularly closely to any individual student. So I hope that people will feel a bit more confident to say, OK, I'm, I'm not expecting to understand all the maths, but I would like you to spell out what you were trying to do, what your assumptions were, what you think this will do well and, and what it won't do well, so we can at least be honest about what the pitfalls are going to be. So we end up having a conversation about uh, the, the rules that get put into algorithms rather than being anti-algorithm uh, full stop. Yes, I think so, because I mean, algorithms can be really useful. If you're looking at a population level, algorithms can be really helpful because you think, you know, we do want to be able to predict things like uh, how many hospitals are we going to need in 10 years' time? How many old people's homes are we going to need? How much do you need in your pension fund to cover everybody's pensions? Those kinds of things algorithms are very good at if you design them well because they can handle more data than one human mind can really take in. So I don't think we should give up using them, but I think we need to be more honest about what are the limitations of them. Because if you design an algorithm to be fair in one way, it's not going to be fair in some other way. You can't, in an unfair world, you cannot design an algorithm that's going to be fair in every possible way. So we do need to be honest about well, if we do this well, what are we going to end up doing less well? If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Sticking uh, with exams uh, for the time being, but looking more broadly at the political implications uh, of all of this. What happens when there's a story on the front pages and you just can't shift it? How dangerous is it politically to lose the trust of young people? Well, two people who know that probably better than uh, most. Sean Kemp, uh, former Liberal Democrat uh, special advisor in Downing Street, joined the coalition. So knows a thing or two about what happens when young people take to the streets angrily. Morning, Sean. Morning. Uh, and uh, Paul Harrison, uh, former press secretary for Theresa May, who I once, and this was meant as a compliment, uh, described as the face of the crumbling regime. Morning, Paul. Morning. Uh, thanks both uh, for joining us. Uh, start with you, Paul. What's it like in in government on days like today? We've seen, well, in fact, we haven't seen. That's the sort of side of the point. No sign of Boris Johnson, no sign of Gavin Williamson, uh, no ministers uh, willing to go out on the air to discuss this. What's it like in Downing Street on a day like today? Well, I mean, I start with a slightly controversial point that maybe some of your listeners will just simply not believe. But actually, in government, there are lots of people who are trying really, really hard not to stuff up. Nobody means to do it. Uh, so you do sometimes feel surprise or indignancy or, or whatever. But, you know, the, the actual atmosphere will probably be a tense one. Uh, ultimately... It slightly depends on the composition of the number 10 that you work in. It so happened that when I was there, despite you know a number of fairly high-profile mishaps, uh, the people I worked with I liked. So the atmosphere was quite collegiate and quite hardworking, even when you were really visibly under the pump. So... You know, but I mean, there's no doubt they'll be they'll be feeling pressure, and lots of people's minds will be spinning quite a lot faster than they usually would be, and they won't have had anywhere near as much sleep as they'd like. Is it your sense that there are some people who work in government at the moment who don't like all of their colleagues? Oh uh, no, that's uh, not what I'm trying to do. But I do think it, what, the point I suppose I'm trying to make it maybe it's a bit counterintuitive is that. When I was there, every now and again, if you saw someone who you hadn't seen in a while, and obviously they would look at the news and they would think, this government is a disaster, uh, but they'd sort of look at you and their immediate reaction was concerned. But actually, because you know I was working in an environment I liked, I was doing a job that I thought was a huge privilege, and my colleagues were people that I now count as friends, it wasn't quite as bad sometimes as it might appear from the outside, if that makes any sense. It does, it does. It, so uh, we, don't, we needn't worry about the people currently in uh, Downing Street. Uh, let's bring you in, uh, Sean. Um, uh, let's talk about, obviously, you've got particular experience of what happens when a, a party in government upsets all the young people. Lib Dems. I, I, I'm, I'm one of the, yeah, I'm a leading expert in, in politicians upsetting teenagers, basically, <laughs> in my niche. I mean, somebody, you know, there's a, there's a good book in that one day. We could certainly do a small books. Um, uh, so what's it... <laughs> What do you do when you've got yourself in this uh, in this situation? Well, I, mean, I suppose there's a specific situation where you mean of if you've upset a whole, well, I'm going to say a whole generation. I don't think this one's quite as extreme as that. It's tuition fees one, which is, um, it's probably was more worse for the Lib Dems in coalition because we had, you know, tuition fees was such a totemic policy. It was a you know, a U-turn on a totemic policy, and we were incredibly popular with students. Um, I think that, so it was almost, it was, and it's proved to be a sort of an existential issue for the Lib Dems. So it was, that was awful and very serious, but also with tuition fees, there was kind of a sense of there wasn't anything we could do about it. We knew the decision had been made. It was a depressing and miserable decision to have to make. There's a lot of desperately trying to explain why we did make the decision. 
But at the end of the day, it almost felt like it was to a great extent beyond our control. This one's a little bit different because the government still does some have some element of control over what's going on. This one reminds me a little bit more from the coalition years of the um the NHS white paper, for example, when there was a great outcry and then you, what you saw was the government desperately trying to work out what p- policy changes it could make to try and sort of assuage some of the anger. But there's look, there's, there's a feeling of you feel a slightly besieged and as a sort of um, comms advisor, which I was, what you find particularly frustrating, which I saw in the papers over the weekend, was there were sort of ministers going, oh, this has been a comms, you know, this has been a comms nightmare. So it's not really the comms, you know, it's not the media advisor's fault. It's, it's a policy issue. And so that I particularly found that it was people always just saying, well, if you could just explain the, the reasons for the decision a bit more, everyone would understand. They, they won't. They're annoyed. Um, and that was always what I found most sort of beleaguering, which is this sort of sense that, People thought if you just came up with a better soundbite, somehow the whole thing would go away. Is that, Paul, is that why we're not seeing ministers this morning? Just because actually putting someone up, they haven't got an art, there isn't a common solution to this. I think possibly that's partly true. I mean, clearly a lot of people are working very hard to try and work out what the best thing is to do. And, you know, without really seeking to uh, defend anyone, because, you know, that's not the humorous uh, nature of your show, but <laughs> there are there, there are no good options here. So you're, you know, something that I remember quite well, you're sort of, you're being asked to choose between cataclysmic and probably cataclysmic, but, uh, you know, that's obviously quite invidious. So, you know, with the off-qual sort of change in the appeals regime, they obviously need to come up with another one. That probably takes a bit of time and, you know, it's very difficult to say, well, you know, don't worry, we'll have this all squared away soon when can't quite tell you, uh, you know, that, that, <laughs> that's a difficult interview to give. You were obviously, um, well, you were a special advisor to Jeremy Hunt at the time of Theresa May's uh, announcing a social care policy and then you turning on it even before uh, the election. And again, that was a result of Tory MPs having their inboxes bombarded by angry constituents how problematic yeah. is it uh when that starts happening and particularly right now where there are lots of new Tory MPs this might well be the first time they've had this sort of onslaught yeah I mean I think we actually did see that a little bit in the fallout over Don Cummings and, uh, and the trip to Durham a lot of new MPs who you know are in many cases new to public life in its entirety just aren't used to that you know, that extent of kind of outpouring of vitriol or opinion or, you know, that kind of incoming fire, they're just not used to it. And therefore, you know, that sometimes does shape the way that they talk to whips. Um, although in the case of the social care policy, I seem to remember at one point, it was a very long weekend in CCHQ uh, <laughs> after it had been announced and before the kind of uh, the thing that I don't say, that sounds a bit like Harry Potter, uh, the next day, um, where an editorial MP, who I won't name, came in and told us that he'd been attacked by one of his supporters with his own lawn sign. Uh, so you know, we knew at that point it was pretty bad. <laughs> that was the time to, to U-turn on it. Um, th- th- lots of people, I mean, admittedly opposition politicians, saying Gavin Williamson's got to go. Um, at what point do those conversations start being had in Downing Street about whether a ministerial resignation is the solution to this? I mean, there's no hard and fast rule, to be honest. And I think... You know, again, another another of my deeply unfashionable opinions, but in a way, commendably, uh, what these guys have shown is that their knee-jerk reaction isn't just to sack a minister. Uh, you know, sometimes, presumably, they think they don't want to give the media a scalp, but presumably, there will also be a kind of thought process, which is that it won't fundamentally change the nature of the problem while it's happening. So, yeah, there's there's no hard and fast rule, but I mean, you know, 
obviously we, for, for one reason or another, we sacked quite a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> you certainly <laughs> lost quite a lot of people, some through choice better. and some otherwise. Obviously, I mean, obviously, Gavin Williamson was one of them during your, your, your turbulent time. Yes, yes. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, based on something that obviously he has strenuously denied. Yeah, the, the, the question of whether or not he'd leak for the National Security uh, Council. Um, Sean, given uh, what happened uh, with the Lib Dems and never recovered, still haven't recovered uh, with young people or, or, or frankly, any people, uh, how... Do... <laughs> <laughs> That wasn't actually a joke. That was just a. No, no, I just, I just have to laugh. Now, a, a sort of sophological observation. How do you think that this is yet on that scale? Um, no. Okay. I, I, I think even tuition fees. It's tuition fees, obviously huge and totemic, but it was also because it symbolised something broader about what the Liberal Democrats were perceived as having done, which is the series of U-turns and, if you like, having sold out to get into government. Now, I could disagree with that, but that was that was the perception. And tuition fees was the perfect embodiment of that. Um, I don't think it was just tuition fees on its own. And I think there's a lot of times, a lot of stories that at the time feel like they're going to be massive game changers. A few months down the line, we almost look back and go, actually, I didn't really, has that really moved the dial much? Um, and particularly ones where we think, frankly, they're going to be ones where the younger generation will turn like this. You know, there's an argument there, Iraq, the Iraq War, for example, didn't make any particular difference to people's voting behaviour over time. So I don't think at the moment this is on that level where it's going to be one of these things in an election a few years time, people are going to go, that's a factor. The, what will worry, I think, the government is if you have a few things like this and there starts to be a narrative about um you know, competence, which is always a challenge for any government, but also a sense that the better off get get out of it, you know, get away with it, if you like, um, you know, which goes against the kind of levelling up agenda, which we were just hearing before, you know, if you're in a smaller class and did Latin, you, 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 you've come out of this better than people who are in larger classes, for example. So I think that will, would worry the government if that's a story over time. If they can find some way to kind of keep this under control and try and get a bit, little bit more of a sense of fairness. I don't think there's anything like the impact, say, tuition fees did. And presumably, Paul, part of the reason is because the, the, the Tories' uh, popularity isn't based on uh, being popular with young people. No, and, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a sort of slightly uncomfortable uh, historic trend in that if you're, if you're a Tory, uh, because your support, exactly as you say, doesn't come from... Uh, doesn't come from that group of people from the from the younger voters. I mean, it's something that will worry because obviously, you know, that is not an acceptable uh, state of affairs, uh, given you know what inevitably happens to older people um, towards uh, towards their later years. So, you know, <laughs> and the, also these young people do have parents and grandparents who who could be you know pretty aggrieved on their behalf about this. Yeah, quite. I mean, it, you know, it's a, it's a dreadful sort of you know, media spin doctor thing, but it, it, it's it's the kind of story that has cut through because most people have made life decisions on the basis of exams like these, even if you know, they weren't A-levels, you know, the older generation would have done O-levels, we're about to probably see GCSEs this week. So yeah, it, it, there's no doubt it's a problem that needs fixing. And as you say, it, it disproportionately affects, you know, a particular cohort. Uh, just finally, then, before I let you go, uh, Boris Johnson, we think, is on holiday. Is this the sort of thing a Prime Minister ought to cut his holiday short for, Sean? Uh, it's getting there. It's probably not there yet. I, I, the, the problem is that every time a Prime Minister goes on holiday, someone finds some reason why they, they have to. Historically, I don't think he's probably particularly willing to do that. I, I, if it carries on for much longer, I think, he'll, I think he might be tempted to. Uh, what about you, Paul? 
I mean, yeah, I think the same, to be honest. He, he might be tempted to. I, the reality of a PM going on holiday is that you're not really ever on holiday because there are people with guns and people with bits of paper who follow you around literally everywhere you go. So, you know, a little bit of a Downing Street machine actually goes with him wherever he is, and it went with Teresa wherever, wherever she was. So, you know, but there is obviously a perception thing, and the government will, as I say, want to be seen to, doing, to, to do everything it can to, to, to try and wind this back a bit. That was really good to speak. That's Paul Harrison there, former press secretary to Theresa May and Sean Kemp, a former uh, spin doctor for the Lib Dems when they were in coalition and had their own particular issue with upsetting uh, the young people uh, for which they've still not recovered. Really good to speak to them about the political implications of uh, this exam uh, chaos. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.